0: It is good to see you. If you're a guest with us, by the way, my name's Joel, and I'm one of the pastors here. I want to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 2. Uh, if you have a Bible, that old-fashioned thing they call a book, you can go to the first uh, book of the New Testament as Matthew. Three books later, you're going to find John, or you can let your iPad find it for you. Uh, that will work as well. Uh, if you didn't bring one with you, no worries. We'll have those verses up on the screen in just a moment. We began last week a series simply entitled Different. I got the chance to take a couple of months and just sort of push the reset button spiritually and all other ways, including and just in terms of thinking about the next seven to 10 years of ministry here and what that's going to look like. Uh, I'll have more to share with you about that a week from tonight, October 15th. For those of you that are signed up for that, uh, child care is available. Remember that dinner will be provided. And I really look forward to sharing that with you. I'm very, very excited. Uh, Look forward to seeing you there. Um, But here's the big question as I came back, two of them really. Number one, what kind of disciples do we want to produce at Covenant? That's an important question. It's not just a question of quantity. What does it matter how many of something you have if you don't even know what you have. What kind of disciples? And then the second question, even more important, what are those disciples together to accomplish? What is the impact we want to have in the world? What kind of disciples are we making? What kind of difference do we want? Make And so eight weeks split into two halves. The first half is what are those disciples? What do they look like? What are some of their characteristics? And then the second half, what is their impact? How do they reflect the kingdom of God? How do they interact with society? What difference do they make inside the life of the church? All of that under this rubric of this one word, different that God calls us to be different. He calls us to be separated and holy, and we started unpacking that last week by just emphasizing the fact from Paul's words to the church at Colossae that God expects us to live questionable lives, the kind of life that would cause people outside the faith to look at you, look at me, and go, what's different about you? What's Maybe even what's wrong with you? Uh, who are you? Why are you the way that you are? Today, we're going to talk about hospitable lives Christians live questionable lives but part of what raises those questions is this sense of hospitality that the Holy Spirit uh, desires for us to manifest in our lives in different ways now for some of you I say that word hospitality and the first thing that comes to your mind is probably not a pleasant thing all right when you say God commands us to practice hospitality Okay. And that's contrasted with another New Testament term, fellowship, almost inevitably. Every time the New Testament speaks of a relationship between believers, that word is our English word fellowship, almost inevitably and every time it speaks of our relationship to people outside who don't share our faith, which would include our Jewish neighbors that we prayed for earlier or, or anyone else really of all faith and no faith, the term is hospitality. Okay. What parts of that term make you nervous? Sit there and just sit in that for just a minute. Some people, like my wife who's one of these, just have this incredible gift of demonstrating hospitality. But for a lot of people, hospitality, kind of like evangelism, it's a difficult. And it's difficult for a couple of reasons. First off, because it does involve the love of what, what the scriptures actually put, it sounds kind of harsh in our culture, love of the stranger. Love of the other, love of the alien, love of the enemy even. And, and some of us just, some of us, it's not even a thing about enemies or people that have different religious beliefs. You just don't like people. A few too many of you laughed at that, actually. But, it, but, it, but yeah, I mean, you may as well be honest, right? I mean, God sees and God, I mean, yeah, I just don't, I just, I don't do people. You feel a little like Arnold Glassow. He says, some folks make you feel at home, others make you wish you were home. Any of us, even the most extroverted of us. I love people, but some people get on my nerves, right? There's a Swahili proverb. Kenyans are very hospitable people. It's a very high value in their culture. And this is what they say. Treat your guest as a guest for two days. On the third day, give him a hoe. So like even in some of those most hospitable kinds of cultures, it's a hard thing to practice. Here's the second reason that that hospitality can sometimes be a challenge, especially for we evangelicals. It's hard because we too too often will confuse, especially in our Western culture, hospitality with what our culture calls the hospitality industry. And they're two completely different things, right? Some of you heard hospitality and immediately you thought complimentary bottled water, High speed Wi-Fi. Right? Free upgrades to first class. Flatware instead of sporks. Right? All these different complimentary this and complimentary that. And we want to listen, there's nothing wrong with any of that. Promotional lines of credit, fine China. But here's the difference. Those things are great. Our staff will tell you, I like doing things nice. I don't want to, like, we, we you know, we're, we're not feeding you off of paper plates most of the time when we have an event around here. We, we want to say something about that. I, I do. I, I, I have a value in that. But that in and of itself is not hospitality. You ever been to some, can I put this in, in a South, can I, tra- can y'all translate South Carolinian where I'm from? You ever been to one of these highfalutin places? You know what a highfalutin place, is? China, enough forks in front of me to feed a platoon of marines but I left feeling left out you know why because even though they were excellent at implementing the tools of the hospitality industry they did not show hospitality hospitality is something very very different listen if you're hosting an event and you want it to go well that's great but if you are hyper focused and I mean so hyper focused on whether the colors match or the event schedule is right on time, or the rented flatware showed up, or whether it didn't, and you're not paying any attention at all to the the most important question, are people enjoying themselves? Are people having a good time? What you're doing may not be bad, but it's also not hospitality, because you, you know what you've done in that moment? You made that moment all about you, all right? And this happens at the corporate level. Several years ago, Amy and I bought an appliance because the old one failed. Because we're homeowners, and it's the American dream, right? The thing about the American dream is you never wake up from it. There's always something to do. And so, but I found this promotional line of credit that was six months, no interest. Now, Six months in a day, they're going to charge you interest retroactively, so you got to watch that stuff. But but how many of you have signed up for kind of a special deal like that where you went, you know what, I could take this out of savings, but I won't feel the sting quite as much if they're going to let me use their money for free for six months. You ever done that? It's a pretty good deal. And so I did it. We got the appliance, and about two weeks later, my phone rings, and I look at it, and I could tell it was this company. So I let it go to voicemail. I checked my message. They wanted to contact me to do a customer satisfaction survey. Sounds pretty hospitable, right? All right, that, that's what they wanted. Well, I deleted the message. Let me tell you why. For one, if I'm not happy with the product I just bought from you, you're going to hear from me. Okay, I'll be nice no, first time. All right. But but you'll hear from me, most especially if it's a kitchen appliance. If I'm in this a couple thousand bucks with you, and you haven't heard anything from me, it is safe to assume the best. I'm happy, all right. But that wasn't good enough for these folks. They kept calling, and calling, and calling, and they wouldn't They wouldn't leave me alone. So I finally called back and I said, look, I'm. Here's what you need to know. This is my name. what's your name, sir? What's your address? What's your social security number? What's your blood type? You know, they got to go, okay, now we can talk. Great, great, okay. I'm happy, but I don't have time for a customer satisfaction survey. Just give yourself five out of five for whatever else, and we'll call it even. And this is what she said. But, sir, we don't have a five-star scale. Okay. How long is this going to take? Sir, this call will take approximately seven Minutes. All right. Word to the wise: When you do a customer satisfaction survey with a telemarketer, and they use the phrase "approximately," they're lying to you. Okay. Twenty-three minutes later, I'm still on this call, and I'm trapped. Like I don't know how to get out of this without being ugly, and I don't want to be ugly. I don't want to do that. You know, I don't, I don't want to. Why you make me be mean to you? I don't want to be that guy. I really don't. But I finally just said, "Look, I got to get off. I've got stuff to do." But sir. We can't complete the customer satisfaction survey unless you answer all the questions. And I said, I was completely satisfied until you called me. <laughs> Who's been there? All right. Can I get a witness? This is tough stuff. Like You're, you're just like, what was that about? Well, that call wasn't about making me happy her making sure I was satisfied. It had nothing to do with me. And bless her heart, it didn't have anything to do with her either. She's just trying to make a living. It was a corporation trying to get data, and they were so focused on their data, they forgot about their customer. That happens at the corporate level, that happens at the individual level. Every single time we forget what this basic definition of hospitality is. Do you want to know if you're hospitable? You're going to have to ask a really dangerous question to people that are close to you. Go to them and say this, how do you feel when you're around me? And be willing to listen to a, a brutally sometimes honest answer. Do you feel welcome Do you feel wanted when you are around me? Are you generally, it doesn't mean you always have to deliver good news, you always have to be pleasing, but generally speaking, are you happy when you're in my company? And if they're honest, you'll get an accurate gauge of whether or not you're hospitable. So nothing embodies the call of Jesus any more than hospitality. And that brings us to John chapter two. This is the first miracle he ever performs that's recorded for us in the New Testament. And some of you are gonna love this because it involves wine. And uh, so we're, we're gonna have a good time with this story this morning. But I want you to see four things in this story that hospitable disciples do. It's exactly what Jesus did, all right? And here's number one, hospitality fosters community. It has a way of bringing people together. Chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So, a couple of things here. First off, Jesus has gathered his disciples, and this is one of the first trips they're going to take together. And do you notice they don't go to a revival meeting, they don't go to a Bible conference, they don't go to a seminary, they don't go somewhere that's going to involve a lot of it? Again, those things are necessary. The hard work of ministry is necessary. But where's the first place he takes them? Answer, to a party i like that all right and it's a wedding party second he was invited you notice john goes to that extreme he's like listen i want you to like like this isn't he didn't crash this thing he was invited and the language here actually suggests a personal invitation This isn't just some y'all come in the church bulletin to anybody that wants me. This is the equivalent of an engraved RSVP requested invitation. That means somebody connected to this wedding party knew him and they liked him. They just enjoyed being around him. These people wanted Jesus and his family to be at their party. They wanted him to celebrate this part of their life with him. That's a question. Are there people outside our church fellowship that truly enjoy your company? They want you to be with them at special times in their life. That's the kind of community that leads to people finding Jesus. It almost goes without saying, it doesn't matter how much Bible you know or how theologically sound you are. You influence nobody for Jesus if they don't like you. You just don't. And some of the most powerful moments I have ever witnessed in terms of a move of the Spirit have not happened in atmospheres like the one we're enjoying right now. And don't get me wrong, this is important. You should be, y'all heard me harp about coming to church and bad church attendance habits and what I fear it's probably going to do to the church and to to civil society as a whole uh, in the not-too-distant future when you make that your absolute last priority when there's nothing else to do on Sunday morning. Listen, it's important, but it's important because of what it gets you ready for. And what it gets you ready for are some powerful moves of the Holy Spirit that don't often happen in rooms like this. Sometimes they happen at a party. Sometimes they happen at work. Sometimes they happen in the places you think you're least likely to think that they would happen. In fact, one of the more powerful expressions of the Holy Spirit's work I saw in a VFW hall many, many years ago. I had a pastor friend of mine, his name was Gary Scarborough. He was diagnosed with a very aggressive form of cancer. Now, here's what you don't know about my friend Gary. He was a pastor. It was his second career. He was in business. He went into the pastorate around the age age of 50 or so, uh, and he was pastoring this church in Montgomery County, Maryland. But prior to that, uh, Gary had a past life that involved being a cover band singer for a Journey cover band. And, And Gary, let me tell you how good Gary was. Gary was so good he could, he could do the concert and never sing, Don't Stop Believing. And people were happier because they heard Journey without having to hear that earworm. Right? They loved, like Gary. And, and so here's what happened. He gets, this, he gets this cancer diagnosis. He starts to deal with everything that he needs to deal with. And as can be expected, medical bills start piling up, as they often will do. And I got an an event to the Westminster, Maryland Veterans of Foreign Wars Gathering organized by a guy that was not a follower of Jesus that Gary played in a band with back in the day. And this is what he said. There's going to be an open bar, and there's going to be some of the best blankety-blank music you have ever heard, all to raise money for our friend Pastor Gary. (laughs) And I... And I'm I'm thinking about my friend Gary. I mean, I've known Gary, you you just never, man, goodness. And cancer did eventually take his life. Gosh, I miss that man. Because he was such an encouragement to me. But then you start to realize, man, I wasn't the only one. You see all these lives he touched. And it wasn't just the us four, no more kind of fellowship thing. Like, there were people outside the church that loved this guy. And so Amy and I went. We had a great time. The band was great. There were like three of them. And, and it was amazing to hear these stories of people and how Gary had touched their lives and ministered to them. And then Gary finally got up because his wife said, it's nine o'clock and you've got cancer and I'm starting to see the effect of all this on you and it's time to go home. So he got up and told us that. And he said, I do want you to know that generally speaking, the, the treatment's going well. And I want to tell you how much I appreciate all of you and how much I love all of you and the way you've been a part of my life. And I want you to know this. They tell me that at this moment the treatment's going well. But in case, even if it takes a turn for the worse, and it could, and even if it doesn't, eventually I'm going to dive something. Guys, I know where I'm going, and I sure would love to take all of y'all with me. You can't have a moment like that without hospitality. You, You just can't do it. And we see, thank God, examples for it in the wider church. You know, that opportunity would never come if Gary hadn't spent years focused on the other, all right? When you welcome other people, you put their comfortableness and happiness at the center, you're creating the very kind of community that can open up those very kind of doors. So hospitality fosters community, and by the way, that's it. You're like, well, well, what if they don't come to Jesus? That ain't your problem. That's not my problem. Only God can convert a soul. I had a guy I have breakfast with almost every Tuesday morning at Betty's in Shepherdstown. And, and he, I won't tell you who he is, but he's, he, he, and we don't even like schedule it. He just, we start showing up about the same time. So we start talking and, and he'll, and, well, Reverend, I hate that name. I hate that name. <laughs> Well, Reverend, you saved any souls this week? And I said, Frank, you know good and well I've never saved a soul in my entire life. No human being can do that. So don't worry about it. Just do what you're told. Talk about your faith. Let the joy of just being able to say what Christ has done in your life be enough for you. Otherwise, you'll make it about you. But if you don't make it about you, you know what happens? Community gets fostered. And then here's the second thing. A need gets met usually. Hospitality not only fosters community, it serves a need. Look at verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? That sounds kind of harsh, especially to mom. You're thinking, my mother, God rest her soul, if I'd said something like that, I'd have like four fingerprints right here. Like, yikes, that sounds, you know, my hour has not come. Well, we'll come back to that in a moment. That's not quite as inappropriate as it may sound on the surface, all right? So I'll unpack that for you. But first I want you to see this this phrase, they have no wine. That's nothing to us because we live within 20 minutes of northern Virginia wine country we're basically the east coast napa valley right it's nothing we'll just go get some more we'll go around the the corner to food line we'll do that but in the first century there wasn't a grapes and grains just around the corner and in the middle of a big celebration like that when you're out you're out and then to complicate matters further a shortage of wine at a wedding brings all kinds of embarrassment and humiliation to the host because when you run out of wine at a first century Jewish wedding, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty big crisis. Now, if you're one of those people, yeah, I can imagine running out of wine. That would be a crisis. Nothing to calm my nerves with. Nothing to put me to sleep. If that's what you're thinking, you, you need another sermon about a whole other thing. All right, later. That's not the problem here. Okay? When you back up from this story and you, you look at what the scriptures tell us, particularly about wine, you get two contrasting, on the surface, even seemingly contradictory messages. You, you see it associated with two things, joy and snakes. How's that for a contrast, right? It, it bites like a serpent. It stings like a scorpion. Wine is, wine is a mocker, Proverbs 20. Strong drink, raging. Don't be unwise. Don't be taken in. Don't get dependent on this stuff. All right don't don't let it become a god to you but it also is cited as a symbol of joy in moderation kind of like every other good gift from a gracious god it's something psalm one hundred four fifteen speaks of wine that gladdens the heart of man the rabbis actually had a saying without wine there is no joy or as Benjamin Franklin once famously quipped, in wine there is wisdom, in beer there is happiness, and in water there is bacteria. <laughs> all right? This is, this is what the scriptures are telling. out. again, we, we have ways of taking the bacteria out 20 centuries later, so don't you know, drink your water, do all of that. But it's out of this crisis that John paints this deep spiritual lesson for us apart from Jesus you you can have joy people that are not christian have joy god gives them to, that gives that to them in you know limited quantities you can you can have joy in a marriage you can have joy in a wedding you can have joy in a celebration but good times that are nothing more than good times they eventually run out kind of like this wine did at this wedding if you want unlimited joy You must have the presence of Jesus. And in order to have the presence of Jesus, Jesus has to be in control. That brings us back to his words to his mother. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. What what does that mean exactly? What does that mean? Well, on the surface, it might seem harsh, but those words are meant to convey authority. And a couple of things, in the first century... Really, it was completely acceptable for a Jewish mother to turn to her son and request a need to be met. And while Jesus is glad to help, he is Jesus, and he first has to set some things straight. His actions are not going to be governed by mom's ambition to look good at a wedding. His actions, the timetable of his miracles, they are determined by his father. And in one verse, you see Mary finally realizing this. What does it say in verse 5? She looks at the rest of the party, do whatever he tells you, do what he tells you. Now, the packing order is set right, we're ready to watch something happen. The person in charge is no longer the mother, but the son. And when the son is leading the way, needs will get met, amen? They just will. Jesus will fill up every lack in your life when you act as his servants in hospitality toward others. Their needs are met, and they're not just met, they're met at a level that allows them to experience the supreme unlimited joy that is only found in Jesus. You will never meet your neighbor's needs more powerfully than when you do it in submission to Jesus. So when we're hospitable disciples, we foster community and we meet needs, and that in turn brings joy to other people. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. That's noteworthy. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So let's do a little math here. Six jars, 20 to 30 gallons apiece, Okay? And, and by the way, these are jars that John is careful to, to remind us were set aside for ceremonial washing. So, when a Jew was contaminated by a Gentile, they would wash themselves in the water that was in these big jars. So, what Jesus is doing is he's taking a symbol of division and about to fill it to overflowing with uniting hospitality. Right. This is not lost on the people of this wedding. And and he's going to fill it such that we're talking about somewhere between 110 and 180 gallons of wine. William Barclay, in one of his commentaries, actually denied this miracle on this basis. He said, there's no way in the world anybody at a wedding party would be able to drink that much. To which I say, that's kind of the point. That's the point. How many bottles do we have left of this, right? That's a scarcity mentality. That's a scarcity mentality. How how are we ever going to consume all of this? That's an abundance mentality. How are we going to do that? Jesus, the problem he's solving is a shortage of something associated with joy and hospitality. Hospitality. And so his presence and his authority comes into that story and provides joy and gladness and welcoming that never, ever, ever, ever runs out. That's the message. Not only that, but it's good stuff. Look at verse 9. When the master of the feast, this, by the way, is when I say I like to do things nice, all right? not extravagant in some, in some money-wasting way, but you all know there's a balance here, right? There's, 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 one, there's, there's one extreme where you just, you're spending money just to spend money. And then there's that, there's that other extreme where you're washing paper plates and putting them back in the cabinet, right? Doing things nice is a reflection of understanding what Jesus is about here. And we start seeing this is it. He didn't just make wine. He made good wine. Verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor one. The poor one. I was up in the tech booth when when our deacon Isaac read that phrase, and two or three of the guys on our production team started laughing and saying, Poor one. Poor one. And I couldn't help myself. I just went, Sutter home. Bartles and James. No offense to anybody who drinks Sutter home or Bartles. All right, you just, that, you, you have kept the good wine until now. Now, it, let me unpack this for you. It's a pretty typical practice at, at any event like this. You, let me tell you why you pour the good stuff first, because the good stuff is the stronger stuff, which means the alcohol content is higher. And one of the things that alcohol will do, one of the first things it will do, it'll numb your taste buds. So by the time that happens and you get a glass of Sutter Home, you don't know you're drinking Sutter Home anymore because your taste buds can't pick up on that anymore. Right? And so that was the typical practice. And so what does this story tell us? Jesus made some pretty, stout, really good stuff. Jesus can... It's his creation. Of course he can do it. We were in Italy several weeks ago and we ate bruschetta, which I have learned is bruschetta, is how you pronounce it. I think. I may still slaughter it, but at any rate. And my wife says, they got these huge, juicy, red, natural, no artificial colors in this stuff. Right? And she's... She takes a big bite of that with those. And she, she looked at me and she went, mm, Jesus made these maters in his garden. <laughs> like, this is good. This is really, you ever had something like that? Something good to eat, something good to drink. And you're like, oh my goodness, whatever. Like, that's what's happening here. That's what's happening. Because when Christ centered hospitality is expressed to others, it's not just the quantity, it's the quality of the welcoming that goes up. They have never felt more loved, more welcomed, more valued than when they are in your presence. I had a therapist ask me during our sabbatical, have you ever asked people around you this question? How do you experience me? Does that sound dangerous? Yeah, because you might hear an answer that, that just not just offends you, but knocks you sideways, because you have no like, wait, I have no idea it came across that way. I had no idea I came across that way. Oh my gosh, I'm an insufferable jerk. Like, well, no, you're not. But sometimes you can come across that way, and oh my goodness, right? This is hospitality it fosters community, it meets needs. When people leave your presence, generally speaking, they feel joy. And all of this is for a fourth reason. It's because hospitality mirrors the character of God. Verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Like they're why did he take them to a party not to a bible study because once they saw this they're like we're in we're in what do you need us to do where where do we go next okay the ultimate aim of christian hospitality is the glory of jesus which results in greater more solidified more stabilized faith in christ by those of us who follow him as well as by others who are ready to follow him every bit of that emanates. From hospitality some of you had no idea before you walked in here this morning how utterly powerful your dining room table is but it's a powerful thing it's a powerful the table is a powerful thing especially when those tending that table are given over fully to Jesus because when you put your focus on another person around that table when you welcome a stranger around your table, you're doing the same thing Jesus did when he welcomed you who were a stranger, who was an alien, who had done nothing to deserve to be at his table to his table at which you now still sit as a member of the, as an adopted member of the family. So what's that look like? What's that look like for you? It's going to look different depending on your stories, that are in this room depending on the, the the people that you hang with depending on the the people that you look at is maybe a bit of a challenge one of the greatest examples we see in scripture is that of Zacchaeus Luke chapter 19 read that with your your families your significant others when you go home today is a very very rich man who had made his money taking advantage of other people and so as you can imagine in this little small town kind of like Shepherdstown nobody liked him. Nobody. We're also told by Luke that he was small in stature. He was a short guy, which is why that whole sycamore tree um, account is there. He had to climb up it to see Jesus. Why do you think he had to climb? Because nobody is giving Napoleon a front row seat. He took their money. They're not doing that. First guy Jesus approaches. First guy. Zacchaeus is converted, and then the whole town ends up benefiting from his conversion. This, by the way, is the part... Sometimes people leave out if they've got a past, like, well, well the Lord has forgiven me of that. Yeah, but are you making things right? Well, well salvation is is by grace. It, well, it is, but grace, yeah, faith, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. It comes with a change. And we see this in Zacchaeus. I will pay back anyone I have defrauded fourfold. How do you know he's in love with Jesus? Because of the, the change in the way that he wanted to relate to other people. Oh my gosh, I have taken advantage. I, I've got, it, it may take me the rest of my life. I may never be able to fully pay everybody back, but I've got some work to do rebuilding my relationships with other people. Being hospitable mirrors God's character, and it produces exactly those kind of miraculous results. So who's your Zacchaeus? Who's that person at your work, at your school, or whatever in the community, that nobody wants to be around? Who's that, who's that group or even class of people that everybody else is holding at, at arm's length? I imagine among our Israeli neighbors right now, that's a lot of people in the Palestinian community, the overwhelming majority of whom have found themselves in the middle of something represented by a group of people they don't want to be represented by, but they're going to be broad-brushed and they're going to be painted and they're going to be hated. And, and that, hey, Who are those people here? Who do you need to be rubbing shoulders with? One of my favorite stories is that of a guy named Nabil Qureshi, who also, interestingly enough, passed away from cancer several years ago. But Nabil was on the speaking circuit for a long time talking about his testimony and how he came to Jesus. His book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, is just amazing. I, I think it's something every Christian ought to read because he was a devout, committed Ahmadiyya Muslim. And in 2001, he started pre-med studies at Old Dominion University, and he found himself in a dorm room with a young man named David Wood. And they argued all the time. Now, most people are not prone to that kind of thing, so don't just launch into apologetics, okay? Um, But Nabeel came from a culture where that was completely, he's Pakistani, so like we just, we just, in your face, like that's normal. For most people in our culture, that ain't normal, so don't go there and then wonder why nobody talks to you. Okay? But but for Nabil it was different. And David, who is, is really sharp, really brilliant, just they just God just in his providence put Nabil in the dorm with the right guy. And even though they would argue they loved each other, they they sign up for all the same classes together. They would actually sign up for class, like philosophy classes and then and then and then join up and debate the professor. Like they would do that kind of stuff together, and over the course of a period of time, about four years, it took. Nabil became convinced of the truth of the gospel, and he gave his life to Jesus. And and you know what? You're like that. That doesn't happen without community. You're like, wait a minute, 2001 through three four. That took four years. Yeah. Jesus was here for thirty three years. How old were you? when you were reconciled to him. Didn't I say last week God usually don't cook instant grits? Like this isn't how he works. You've got to be in relationship. You've got to love. And the relationship has to be unconditional. My Muslim friends know this. They know I want exactly for them what I saw happen in the life of Nabil Khareshi, but they also know they are my friends until one of us is in the ground and nothing changes that. I don't expect them to become like me. That's called conditional love. You don't do that, right? You you reach out and, and then you're gonna see somebody come to Jesus. During one of his talks many, many years ago now, Nabil mentioned that expression of hospitality not only david but david's mom and dad he would go home and visit and then david would go to his home because pakistani food is off the chain just in case you didn't know so if you get the opportunity whoo man mercy but he mentioned a medical student from pakistan who came over to the united states to study with two suitcases full of host gifts, because it's just common in this culture to, to present a gift, a rather generous one, to, the, to anybody that invites you over. And Pakistani culture is a hospitality culture. They have each other over to the house all the time. And, and he graduated from medical school and went back to Pakistan with every single one of those gifts still in his suitcase, having never in the entire time that he'd been here been invited into an American home. What's wrong with us? All right. That is a huge deal. That's the power of the table. All right. There's more power in your dining room table than you could possibly fathom. So let me ask again, who's your Zacchaeus? Who's your Nabil? Let me challenge you with something really practical here. From now until Christmas, so a little less than three months, I want you to see if you can't find three people to sit down to do a meal with the most ideal situation have them at your home maybe you can't do that for any number of reasons you take them out take them out to eat if it's somebody in another religion you need to do some studying if they're muslim you can talk to any of us we can tell you what the dietary restrictions are you make sure you honor that and you just listen you you need to get because this isn't merely about conversion although certainly we want people to know Jesus we want to share our faith this is about the mutual blessing and benefit of another human being created in the image of God it's about God giving us a wider view of the world that we're not going to have without those other people see if you can find three of them and you set aside some time to get out of the holy huddle of everybody around you believing exactly the same thing that you do focus on that person don't worry about so much whether you're just just be honest when it comes time be bold and talk about your faith in jesus but don't worry about whether you got everything in the right order or whether the apologetic was set up in a way that it was irrefutable or just just love that other that you're going to make it about you if you do that make it about them because that's what jesus did for us listen to them you got a Jewish friend who's torn apart by what just happened this weekend? Take them to eat and just listen. And just weep with them. You have a Palestinian friend who's scared to death that somebody's going to be, you're just like Hamas, you're just like, You listen to them, weep with them, mourn with those who mourn. Be, that, that's called being in a relationship with somebody else. Three people. Three months. And watch the power of the table as you mirror the character of God by bringing joy and and if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ we're glad to have you we have people like you every week it's one of the ways we know we're doing something right is people who have questions about Christian faith people who are skeptics of various sort and kind Let, let, let me tell you the story of every Christian in this room Is that we were once estranged we were once alien this is not an us versus them we are who we are because jesus invited us to the table and before we even got there we discovered he had paid the bill with his death and with his resurrection it's already paid it's already paid and he welcomes you too to his table will you pray with me father thank you for this amazing story of hospitality help us to emulate it and help us to do it in an unconditional way and then lord do what only your holy spirit can do in that environment demonstrate your power by allowing people to see you for who you really are that people would know of jesus god that's our prayer and um It's a prayer only you can answer, but Lord, you've given us a task in the middle of all this, and it is simply to love our neighbors. Uh, So Father, fill us with that. Fill us with the desire to get that done. And by the time we're staring at the ball drop on December 31st, may there be many, many people in this room who have friends they didn't have before, who have understandings that they didn't have before. And above it all, a brother Or a sister in christ that they didn't have before father unite us and make us obedient in times that just seem sometimes like it gets darker every day lord you've given us a light that cannot be snuffed out grant us the will and the ability to be obedient in this moment and i make this prayer in jesus name amen we stand